Tackling your business's finance to-dos can be daunting enough without being slowed down by QuickBooks. More like slow books. NetSuite by Oracle is the number one financial system, no matter how big your business grows. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow. All in one place. Special financing is back. NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program only for those ready to switch today. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite right now. That's NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. If you've always wanted to try meditation but think to yourself, when would I have time? You should check out Headspace. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy-to-use app. Headspace is one of the only apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through comprehensive, clinically validated research. Headspace really can help you feel better. Overwhelmed? Headspace has a three-minute SOS meditation. Need help falling asleep? Use Headspace wind-down sessions. And parents, Headspace has morning meditations you can do with your kids. Headspace works for you, on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash c-suite for a free one-month trial. You'll be able to access Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash c-suite today. Are you ready for a change? A change is gonna do you good. Hey there, I'm Pavlina Asta. First of all, welcome to my newest project, If God Had a Podcast. I started in radio when I was 11 years old interviewing celebrities, and I am so excited for this new chapter. If God Had a Podcast is all about improving you for a better us. That's my plan. Today on If God Had a Podcast, I am with Dr. Jessamy Hibbard, a clinical psychologist based in London, London, England, an author of seven books, including the most recent entitled The Imposter Cure. She's a regular contributor to magazines and in media discussing the imposter syndrome. Welcome to the show today, Dr. Hibbard. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yes, of course. I'm excited uh, to talk about this with you. So could you first discuss what the imposter syndrome is? Well, it was first described by two clinical psychologists called Dr. Clance and Dr. Immis back in 1978. And they described it as a phenomenon in which people believe they're not worthy of success and they have a persistent belief in their lack of ability or skills or competence despite loads of evidence to the contrary. And when I think about it with people, I think about it as a faulty belief so whenever you're doing something difficult or you're pushed out your comfort zone, it's natural that you experience some fear. And that discomfort for imposters gets misinterpreted. So they believe that because they're not feeling great about it, that must mean that they're a fraud or they're not up to the task. And they're falsely believing that other people, particularly confident people, just don't feel like that instead of realizing that that discomfort is something everybody experiences. It just really means that you care about what you're doing, but you're not sure if you can do it yet. And when you start to question that feeling, that's where imposters end up getting it wrong and thinking that they're not up to the task or a fraud in some way. 
Right. And that's, that can be, a, that's a really interesting mindset um, that people have with that. Uh, and I know I struggle from the imposter syndrome all the time. So, and I'm trying to rework my mindset on it. Um, but why are people talking about this so much now? I feel like we've heard a little bit about it, you know, the past couple of years, but I feel like recently it's been um, really in the forefront. Yeah, I agree. Even in the time that um, I talked about writing the book and it kind of took a year, the whole process. And by the time it came out, it's been something that was talked about and has just kept growing and I think in part it's an acknowledgement that this is a really normal feeling and when I you know told people I was writing the book the most common thing that they said to me is I've got that you think it's normal but before that I think it was almost like it was embarrassing or shameful to admit to having those kind of feelings whereas it's much more in the kind of you know it's just much more out there in the public now and people are starting to realize that this thing has a name right um And I think the other thing is that we're getting more and more into trying to do everything perfectly. So when we're feeling like we're not doing well enough or that we're falling short and sometimes we believe it says something about us and that we're not good enough or that other people are getting it right and we're not doing as well, instead of seeing that that's just part of being human and we only really hear what's going on inside our heads, but we judge that against what we see of everybody else's outside. So we're doing this unfair comparison, imagining that everyone else has got it all together but you forget you can't hear what's going on in their head. Right. No, that's completely true. And a lot of times people don't, I feel like people either overshare with their feelings and with how, um, you know, their struggles or whatever they may be going through. And then, but like the majority of people, I don't think do that. So when you see someone else's, you know, successes and you compare yourself to them, I could see where, you know, that could be an issue. Um, how does the imposter get into our heads, though? Like, and how do we fall victim to believing that we're not good enough and deserving that success? Um, I suppose the thing about it is that it feels like this really shameful secret. So you feel like you're going to get found out at any point. And it's not just this worry you've got. Actually, it, you know, when it's more extreme, it fills you with dread and you're doing everything you can to avoid being found out. Mm-hmm. And the reason that it manages to stick despite the fact that people who are experiencing it do tend to do really well. You know, they've either got a degree or worked really hard, done well. You know, they've got something to worry about, so they must have had achievements. But the trouble is that they don't take it on board. And so although you might expect that the belief will change as you get more successful, actually, once you have a belief like believing you're an imposter or worrying that you're not good enough, you collect information that fits that. So the belief isn't just a view you hold it actually biases the way you attend to information, so you collect information that fits. So when you do well as an imposter, you put it down to external circumstances. So you say, it's the team, or I just worked really hard, or I got lucky. Whereas when anything goes wrong, or you feel that you haven't done well enough, you take it very personally, and you see it as down to you. So it's almost like a great big, you know, anything negative can fall in, Whereas anything positive, it's really difficult for it to come in. So it's very difficult for the view to change. Right. And on top of that, imposters set themselves really high standards. So even though everybody else thinks they're doing really well, to them, because they haven't reached these really high standards, often very perfectionistic standards, they feel shame and anxiety and wrongly conclude that there's something wrong with them instead of seeing that it was just their, their standards were unrealistic. You were saying that this is more common with people that have degrees that have had you know some level of success so it is it is more common with successful people um I suppose it's more common because you know it can affect you from 
any walk of life. So mm-hmm. it could be when you're just starting out on your degree. So students can get it. In the book, I wrote a lot about it in a work context, but it can affect you in your personal life too. But I suppose it occurs more when you really care about something. And perhaps when with people who are that bit more self-aware, so they are thinking about what they're doing and they're thinking about all the different reactions to it and how other people might interpret it. And it does very often affect people who are successful. Um, but I, I, I guess it's not just those people. But more often than not, you've got to have something to worry about. So something's got to have gone right for you. Right, exactly. That makes sense. So like the fear of not being enough, right? Um, I feel like, you know, we were kind of talking about this a little bit earlier with the comparing yourself um, to other people and just not not feeling like you're enough. Why do we do this? And um, is it because, like, do women feel this more? Do men feel this more? Who's, who's really feeling it? In terms of who feels it, originally when Clance and Emma looked at it, they thought it was just women and they studied just women. But over the years, it's become apparent that men suffer from it, um, you know, not quite as much as women, but still it really affects them in a big way. So in, they did a study last year and they found that just over two-thirds of women had experienced imposter-type thoughts and just over 50% of men. So whilst women experience it more, it's not that men are lagging that far behind. Mm-hmm. Um and I think it's about how you view yourself and how you see yourself as fitting in with the group you're comparing yourself to. So if, for example, you're a woman at the top of a company and there's not many other women, it's easy to feel that you don't belong. And that feeling of not belonging feeds into it. But it can be down to other factors like your family environment. It's got links to perfectionism. It's got links to low self-esteem. And so there's lots of different reasons that, that it can affect you. And you were also saying that, you know, when something goes wrong, it, you blame yourself. And then when something goes right, you blame it on the team. It's like, oh, we did this as a team effort or whatever, or I just got lucky. Um, why do we discount yeah. ourselves like that or brush, off, brush it off as luck or as no big deal? Like, why, why is that? I think it's a mix of things. It's, this, it's firstly holding this belief really strongly. So if you really feel like, you know, one of the big things that can feed into imposter syndrome is not feeling good enough. So if you mm-hmm. really feel like you're not good enough, every time you do well, it doesn't fit with this belief. So rather than say, oh, well, I must be fine, right. you, you find a way to discount it. And it's almost automatic, you know, as a way to keep this belief intact. And I suppose on top of that, I think things like society feed into it. So it's almost seen as boastful or arrogant or, you know, and I think this applies to women as well, particularly that it's, it's not a good thing to say, oh, I worked really hard and I'm really pleased with how it went. There's something in the way that we talk about success that it's still not quite acceptable to be. You can't like accept it, your success. Oh, yeah, you can't own it, right? Yeah. That's so sad. Because <laughs> you do work so hard, you know, uh, yeah. and you should be able to own it. And I think the other part of it is that some people, you know, like a really common one is that people say, oh, well, I just worked really hard. Anybody can work hard. But what you forget with that, like you say, is that you can, anyone can work hard, but not everybody does because, again, that's a skill. Exactly. And it's this kind of, it, it's not fully acknowledging what it takes to be successful and what those different components are. And then you're not talking about it or thinking about those things so you don't get a chance to connect to it and see yourself as part of that and yourself as the reason for that success. How can we change or what we tell ourselves? Like, how can we just change 
and kind of cure ourselves from the imposter syndrome? I think a big part of it is seeing that what you're expecting for yourself just isn't realistic. So this idea that you're never going to make a mistake, that you're never going to fail, that you should always get things right, that you shouldn't ever feel self-doubt or, you know, kind of worry about how you're doing. It's just not realistic. It's really, you know, normal to have a few failures and then to make a success of it. Right. Often people show you the last part where it's like, ta-da, this is what I've done, and they don't show you all the perseverance and hard work that's gone into it before that. And so I think it's just acknowledging the reality of what it means to do well rather than this idealized version of the end result and people thinking that they got there because they're somebody special rather than seeing what went into it, if that makes sense. And I think things like social media feed into that because you get the kind of glossy feed of somebody without the behind the scenes part of what really yeah. goes on. And actually, just to go back a little bit, what like triggers the imposter syndrome? Is there like something, is there, you know, something that someone said when you were younger? Like I remember for me, um, I had some really brutal dance teachers and coming out, you know, the other side, I just basically didn't think I was very good at anything. Um, and I think that's kind of what snowballed it or could have snowballed it, you know, with other variables, uh, for me so yeah besides just how we talk to ourselves are there other factors that could trigger it basically yeah and growing up the experiences you have do have a big impact because when you're younger how you see the world and what you expect for yourself and what you expect of other people is shaped by the people closest to you because you don't have a chance to you know google it or know from university study or whatever it might be you just have this much smaller view of the world and what people tell you is true, you see is true when you're younger because your thinking is much less mature. So when you have an experience like you did with the dancing, it really sticks in your head, particularly if it's something that you care about or you've worked hard at or you wanted to do well at. And it can be difficult to shape that sort of thing. And again, going back to that belief, you generally build on belief, so you find evidence that um, agrees with what you're imagining about yourself. And again, you ignore the evidence that doesn't fit. And I think that it can be things like, you know, someone important saying something to you or, for example, in families often children get labelled, you know, one's the clever one. Mm -hmm. You're not the clever one. What does that make you? Or even if you are the clever one, what does it mean if you struggle with things? You know, so right. the, the views you have of yourself that are shaped when you're younger definitely have an impact. And I think also what's expected of you. So if your family, you know, kind of were pleased Say, you, say, for example, your family wanted you to become a doctor and then you went into entertainment. Right. <laughs> and entertainment doesn't feel like a success because it isn't what your family defined as success. So it's going outside right. of what you expected. Or, or even if you didn't do that well at school and then you did really well afterwards and nobody had expected it of you, it's hard to then make sense of that for yourself because you weren't the person that anybody thought would do well in work. So it's quite subtle all the different things that can have an impact and it's not generally just one thing it's generally many different things but again once it's there you it, it kind of gets stuck there because you're too scared to tell anybody about it and so then you put into place these coping strategies like working really hard right. or avoiding certain things and the coping strategies that feel like they're keeping you safe actually keep the problem going because it also just sort of sounds like a form of anxiety or depression. 
Yeah, it is definitely linked to those things. Mm-hmm. So if you're terrified that your boss is going to find out you're no good at what you do, then you're going to feel very anxious. Right. Or if you're too scared to go for a promotion or to change jobs because you think you'll be found out, again, it can feed into low mood or um, not feeling good about yourself and low self-esteem. So I suppose they are, they're definitely linked to those mm-hmm. things. And then if imposter syndrome is more... You know, if you think about that continuum, for some people it just pops up, you know, very occasionally. For some people, they feel it in certain situations. So, for example, one place where I felt it um, when I was first kind of doing more media work was public speaking. So I felt like, oh, I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't be here doing this because it was out of my comfort zone. And it tended just to be in those situations. Whereas for some people, it's pretty pervasive and it affects them at work and at home and it's, more chronic and for those people they're much more likely to experience depression mm-hmm. or um, more severe anxiety and what was interesting in the study that I was telling you about earlier with where they looked at who experienced it they found that it didn't just affect them at work they were looking at people at work they found it also had an impact on their home life because they had less left over for home so oh, they wow. weren't what would able to at home? their home life in the same way um more exhaustion feeling like um they didn't really have much left at the end of the day, not feeling so good about themselves. Mm. It wasn't just having an effect in one place. And like you say, it's having effects of leaving them anxious, but also often quite low. Millennials and Gen Zs have a lot of pressure, you know, to be perfect because like we talked about uh, social media and, you know, you kind of want to portray that you have this perfect life and everything. Um, but there's also like our family, our environment, uh, school systems, social media, like I said, that want us to be perfect. Um, how are younger generations able to cope with this? And what are some of the coping mechanisms they can use or not use um, so they can kind of avoid getting the imposter syndrome? Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And the research backs it up. So perfectionism is on the rise and it's seen as increasing in um, that generation. Right. And this idea that they you know everything should be perfect you shouldn't ever fail you need to get things right first time all of those ideas feed into it and like we said earlier it's it's not a realistic view of how things go you know when I researched a book for example Mm. with failure I looked at really successful people and I couldn't find a single story of success where failure hadn't been part of it because actually you learn from those things it builds your resilience you see that you can cope with difficulty and you become less scared of it and so I think part of the thinking for um, millennials and Gen Z is that actually perfect doesn't exist. And almost to give yourself permission to fail and see that that's going to help you get to a better point than never failing. You know, it's kind of part of the path of success. And I think the other thing is just to really start to become more aware of that voice that says you need to do everything perfectly or the more self-critical or imposter syndrome voice because that voice hasn't got your best interest at heart it's actually the voice of your fears so the more you learn to hear it and externalize it the more you can kind of answer it back and see that what it's saying to you isn't true and that gives you a chance to go against it rather than just go along with it so for example if it says you know if I think back to my public speaking just don't do the public speaking stick with the clinic work and stay clear of all of that you know I never would have had a chance to do it and see actually it's nerve-wracking but you feel great afterwards and you're really pleased that you've done it and you get to meet a different type of person and reach a different audience right. and so it prevents you from seeing the good side to 
um, doing those things. No, completely. And then when you, yeah, sorry, you go. No, you're you're good. I just I don't know. I I think it's so interesting. Um, I was just thinking about this while you were talking as well, but um, how we live in a culture that is so open to you know be whatever gender you want to be. You can um, you know it's just like a very tolerant. Uh, open generation, you know, body positivity, like all of these different things um, that should make us feel good about ourselves. And yet we still want the perfection or like we expect this perfection. Like you'd think that would be somewhere in the movement of being yourself and feeling good. And you know what I mean? Like, so I'm just amazed that um, that's such a, a prominent thing and like how everyone wants to be perfect. I know. And I can't help but think that it's all talked about a lot, but whether or not people really believe it. Right, you see? exactly. So I think that they talk about it and they think, that's definitely right, but maybe not for me. I'm different. I want to be exceptional. Well, I, I have to be perfect. Than that. Yeah, you can yeah, make your exactly. mistakes. I have to be perfect. Exactly. And so whilst you theoretically get it and that people are much more open and there's much more room to be whoever you want to be, there's still this part, particularly amongst high achievers, where they're saying, well mistakes are normal but I'm never going to make a mistake and perfect doesn't Mm -hmm. exist but I think that I can reach it you know so it's like two rules the Sunday Times style says that your book the imposter cure is the defining guide to understanding and beating the imposter syndrome so congratulations on this latest book um where can people find your book and can you tell us a little bit about it um yeah it's it's all about imposter syndrome and it explains what it is and the roots of it and where it's from but also it's filled with lots of strategies and exercises that you can do to really make changes and I hope what the book does which um, is different is that I think it's imposter syndrome has been talked a lot but almost as this thing you've got to put, put up with whereas all of my experience working with people and even my experience you know personally has shown me that there's many ways many things that you can do to beat it and that it can make a huge difference to your life as well. So um, that's the book and it's available It's available in the States from, I think, all retailers and online and things. So um, I, I'm not exactly sure where in the States, actually, but I know that it's <laughs> it, it, it? an American version of it out. Okay, good. Like Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that kind of thing, your website maybe? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not on my website, but it's definitely on Amazon. And I'm, okay, I should think Barnes & Noble as well. If it's on Amazon, then I'm covered. Because <laughs> my whole <laughs> yeah, life is yeah. just ordered from Amazon. Thank you for the time. And it was a pleasure talking with you, Dr. Hibbard, on If God Had a Podcast. I'm Pavlina Asta. And don't forget to be a better you for a better us. Are you ready for a change? A change is gonna do you good. Are you ready? Thank you so much for listening to If God Had a Podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, share. You can reach me at on all of the socials at Pavlina Asta. And until next time, be a better you for a better us. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.